following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. I don't know if this was ever your problem, but I was raised in a blue-collar neighborhood and there was a lot of wealthy people at my elementary school. There was a lot of poor people at my elementary school. And I kind of grew up a little bit with envy for those people who had more than I did. Anybody ever suffer from that? You kind of looked with envy of the people around you going, boy, they've got their, yeah, thank you for raising your hand. They've got the cars. They've got the house. I mean, come on. I began to develop attitudes over those who owned high-end homes and classy cars Uh, those people who um, had expensive toys, and I began to struggle over those who traveled to exotic places and had those long vacations, you know, that like I would never be able to do unless I won the showcase showdown on Price is Right, you know. It wasn't going to happen otherwise, and my prejudice continued as my parents as a junior hire dragged me to church. And they forced me to go, and I noticed at the churches that we kind of checked out at first that uh, the elderships were made up of doctors and lawyers and high-end business types. There were no teamsters on the eldership, and that began to fuel my uh, issues and then add to my struggle the many sarcastic insults that I received from driving a 72 exploding Pinto. And then also buying clothes at Sears and Kmart. The shame of it that that would happen. And then the Lord saved me at 18. And all of a sudden started to work in my heart to begin to change me in the way that I looked at things and especially the way I looked at people. I saw them different. I was not supposed to be a respecter of persons evaluating someone by their appearance or what they owned or didn't own. I was not supposed to evaluate people by their income. I was to not look at believers, their clothes, or their wealth, or their cars, or their homes, and then make judgments. That became very clear in the Scripture. And then the Lord even allowed me to meet some wealthy believers who were not proud manipulators. Uh, They were not spoiled materialists. They were not greedy. They weren't even snobby uh, or uh, self-deserving above it alls, you know, that kind of attitude. But they were actually humble and gracious, and giving with their resources, honoring Christ with their wealth. They began to live out what really the Bible teaches, that your wealth is a tool, and they began to live out 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. It's there in your outline. Take a look at it, because I want you to read it out loud with me, if you would. Let's read it together. And you say, Chris, why would you have us read this passage together? Let me make it really simple. If you own a home, or if you have an apartment to go to, you have a roof over your head, if you have clothes, if you have food to eat today, the Bible considers you and me rich. We are the wealthy ones. The impoverished are the ones who don't have a roof over their head, don't have clothes, and don't have food. That's the dividing line of the Scripture. So therefore, everyone in this room is what? rich. You are wealthy. We are live in a wealthy nation. Even though it's declining, you are living in a wealthy place. So therefore, this applies to all of us and me included. Let's read it out loud. Here we go. Ready? Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, 
but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. It began to dawn on me, and maybe this happened to you too, where all of a sudden it really wasn't their wealth or their poverty or their lack of money, but the real issue was a person's heart where they were before the Lord. Then adding fuel to the truth of God's Word as life progressed, I began to meet those who were unfortunate or those who had less income, those who might be considered on the low end of the economic scale and financially poor, and some of them were petty. Some of them were constantly envious, constantly jealous, manipulative, self-appointed victims, and really resentful in their own hearts. And it became really clear that it wasn't the issue of wealth and it wasn't the issue of lack of wealth. The issue was where their heart was before the Lord. Now, what is true about wealth for the Scriptures and for us is also true about your education. It doesn't matter if you graduate from an Ivy League school or you graduate from Cypress Junior College. It doesn't matter. Those don't matter. Your race doesn't matter. Your background doesn't matter. Your family doesn't matter. Your occupation. Where you live and where you were born, it doesn't matter whether you came from Hemet or not. It really doesn't. That's why I bring it up, because it doesn't matter. What matters is, once you're in Christ, once you're born again, once you're truly a member of the family of God, none of those categories define you. Not one of them. In fact, only Christ defines you. It doesn't matter if you've got a lot of resources or little. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. Once you're in Christ, you are a totally new creature. That's right, a totally new person, and you have a totally new identity. All of us now in Christ, rich or poor, you know, old or young, all of us, we're in one family. We have one Heavenly Father. We have one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are made one by the indwelling Holy Spirit. We're going to one eternal home forever in heaven. We are one in Christ. In fact, that's what the Bible tells us, Galatians 3.28, what? There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. You could add, there's neither rich nor poor. Can I hear an amen? For you are a one in Christ. The ground at the cross is level. It's level. Your wealth gives you no advantage. Your lack of wealth gives you no disadvantage. Your position in this life cannot save you, for once you're in Christ, everything changes. Everything. Some preachers, this is documented by more than one historian, some preachers in the early church were slaves, and their masters were in the congregation. Understand how it worked? It didn't matter what their position was. What mattered was they were in Christ. The Jewish culture had a really hard time understanding this. It was very, very difficult. They thought that wealth was a clear indication of the blessing of God and that they assumed that because of that, the rich man was an automatic into heaven, automatic ticket to heaven. You see this with the shock 
of the disciples when the rich young ruler walks away without salvation. And they're thinking, if Mr. Bucks can't be saved, then who can be saved? They didn't understand it. They were shocked by that. They thought that heaven could be won by a large income and high position in this life when actually salvation, in the simplest way to put it, requires that every single one of you, are you ready? This is the expectation. You must be perfect to go to heaven. Absolutely perfect. I'm not making this up. This is biblical, friends. You have to have absolutely no sin, absolutely never make a mistake, never a bad thought. You have to be perfect to be in God's presence. You're saying, Chris, we're in trouble. Amen. And yet God in His love and in His grace and in His mercy then provided a way for His Son, the perfect God-man who never sinned and absolutely perfect, to die in your place, to rise from the dead, and now He can, when you put your life in His hands, when you put your faith in Him, He can cover you in His righteousness called being justified, and therefore you can be perfect when you go to heaven, not because of what you did, but because of everything that Jesus was and did. You get it? That's the Christian gospel. And wealth and poorness have nothing to do with it. Those categories in life do not make any difference. You could be stinking wealthy, and you're not going to make it to heaven unless you come by Jesus Christ. You could be absolutely impoverished, wondering when your next meal is ever going to come to you, and it will make no difference in your eternity with Jesus Christ. Absolutely none. You say, Chris, why are you talking about this? I'm so glad you asked. Because that's what James brings up now in our study of the book of James. He brings up wealth and he brings up poverty in the context of trials. Being rich or poor has nothing to do with salvation. Worldly advantage, disadvantages make no difference with your turn. You can be a Roosevelt. You could be a billionaire. You could have seven PhDs. You could marry a supermodel. That's what I did. Uh, you, you could be generous. You could have 12 children and all of them homeschooled. They could all be Ivy League, East Coast. They could all graduate from USC, which matters to nobody except if you graduated from USC. None of that, absolutely none of it gives you a relationship with God. None of it. Only Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ. Salvation only comes with submission to Jesus Christ as Lord, as the one you're surrendering to, as the one you're saying, I'm putting all my hope in Him and not in myself and not in anything that I would ever do. In fact, I depend on His work on the cross on my behalf, His resurrection from the dead. I come to Him in faith. I turn from my sin and repentance to follow only Him. And when it happens to you, it results in a transformed heart and a life that follows Jesus Christ. Because that's where our hope is. And that's what we proclaim. One of the most powerful ways that God makes it clear that your standing in this life whether wealthy or impoverished, makes no difference, is that he talks about the issue of trials. And that's why James brings it up, because it is a major issue in the New Testament. You need to understand, the number one issue in the New Testament was Jew or Gentile. That was, you see that over and over again, and they had to wrestle with that because it had to be understood that that didn't make a difference in you coming to Christ. 
You could come, Jew or Gentile. The second level of misunderstanding and tension in the New Testament times was rich or poor. And that's why James brings it up here. He brings it up in his discussion. And un, one of the main ways God's going to get your attention, whether you're wealthy or whether you're impoverished, is trials. His trials. Understand, that's why James brings it up. Like thieves who beat up the Good Samaritan, trials lie in wait for you and for me. And understand, they're going to attack every single one of God's children, whether you're rich or poor. Can I hear an amen to that? Everyone gets trials. Amen? Everybody does. And that's, again, part of James's discussion. If you're not with us or you're new with us, James chapter 1, verses 9 through 12, we're studying the book of James. We're going through it. Please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. And if you would, follow along in your outline. And by the way, just a sub-thought, if you want to accelerate your growth in Christ, if you want to really grow, then take notes. You say, well, why are you saying that? Because it's a fact. Understand, you are more prone to retain what you hear you're more prone to actually do the word and be a doer of the word, which James is going to talk about in chapter 1, if you're taking notes instead of just staring at me. All right? So understand, walk that through. Remember where James was at. He talked about trials. We've studied these verses already, verses 2 through 8. James reminds God's children that their trials, your trials, and if you're going through one today, it was not an accident. It was absolutely not a random accident. Your Heavenly Father is sovereign, and he is providentially right now at work controlling every circumstance, controlling every relationship in your life. And you need to understand that your Heavenly Father is over all of that every minute of your life. And that includes trials, those difficult pressures. We understood trials as actually defined, the word itself, as a pressure that happens to you on your worst day. And it was designed for you by God. You already know Romans 8.28. Take a look at it in your outline there. It says God causes how many things? All things, everything to work together in His providence for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. You already know Philippians 1.29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. You already know 2 Timothy 3.12. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You already know what Joseph told his brothers when they tried to kill him and then they changed their mind and then sold him as a slave for 13 years. He's basically set aside on the shelf. He looks at his brothers now as the second in command in Egypt and he says in Genesis chapter 50 verse 20, as for you, my brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. He saw it. He understood it. Even evil people are allowed by God to accomplish His purposes in your life. All trials are intentional. Intentional. You have a loving Heavenly Father who controls every detail of this world, every minute of your life, and He has a purpose behind every single event, every one of your relationships at home, work, school, and at random. He promises every Christian trials will come into your life. Those pressures. James chapter 1, verse 2, the half-brother Lord does not say if trials come, but he says what? When they come. And the Greek word trials there again is defined by its context. We understand verses 1 through 12, the context defines it as pressures or trials, tough stuff, hard issues, the complications of your life is what we're dealing with here. And God has allowed them for his purposes. What are the purposes? That you would be forced to come to him. He knows that if things are good and going well and you're cruising, 
you're going to forget about him. Come on, would you admit it? Would you admit it that you go through life and you don't think about the Lord until he, whoa, a trial. You're like, oh yeah, okay, here we are. Come on, please, some nods of the heads maybe. Just a little, thank you. Understand, we're in this together. And that's what he does. He awakens us to the reality of our desperate need. And so that you and I would either, are you ready? Come to Christ. There might be some of you here, you need to know the testimony of the people in this room. Because there are many, many, if not most, of the Christians in this room who came to Jesus Christ through the course of a very serious trial. And that trial brought them to the point of humbling and crushing under the weight of their own sin, and they cried out for a Savior. That's what trials do. They bring you to Christ. And then if you are a Christian, you say, why does he keep doing it? So you'll become like Christ. It's pretty simple. So that you would grow in endurance, and endurance is not just remaining under, it's also a character trait. When you grow that way, you grow deeper maturity-wise, intimacy-wise, and usefulness for Jesus Christ. Some of the most influential people in this room are the people who've gone through some of the deepest trials in this room. Because they are used and dependable. They don't rely on their own resources anymore. They're, they're just like, nah, that doesn't matter. I just need Jesus. Every day, they're used by God because of that. So here you are. God put Joseph 13 years in prison as a slave, as a steward, falsely accused. 13 years to make him the second most important influence in Egypt so that he could preserve Israel in Egypt. Uh, the three and a half years, he worked on Peter. Peter mouthed off this, mouthed off that, constantly shaping that apostle with a huge foot-shaped mouth. And understand why. Turn him from pebble into rock. Peter the rock. And what did he do with Paul? He's out in the wilderness, almost forsaken by his own people so that he would be able to plant churches in Gentile countries. In Gentiles, the Jewish Pharisee who would now plant churches amongst the Gentiles. It took that kind of trial, that kind of pressure to transform those men. And we saw last week that James commands Christians who are experiencing trials, go to prayer and ask for what? Wisdom. Ask for what? Wisdom. Say, Lord, help me to understand what you want me to do, how you want me to respond, so I can glorify you through this process. I'm, I'm going to trust you, and I'm not going to lean at all on my own understanding. I'm going to trust you. And you and I often don't understand God's purposes, purposes, and so we want to, in the midst of trials, after you're being tempted, sometimes you think, gosh, if God would allow this kind of pain in my life, I mean, he can't really care for me. And so he's driving us to begin to understand his character, his life, his person. He doesn't want you to become the double-minded person. Remember when we looked at that last week? It's one of two things. The double-minded individual is somebody who's a phony so-called Christian who trusts himself over God, and then through the trial it's exposed as they walk away from the Lord that they never really were saved in the first place. Or it could be the temporarily weak believer who's looking at himself or herself. He's looking at his circumstances or her circumstances instead of looking at who? Christ. And they get off track. So he's wanting us to remember in the context here, listen, don't be looking at the world. Don't be looking at other people. Don't be looking at circumstances. Listen, if you're anything like me, first thing you get a trial, you're trying to fix it. Anybody with me on that? You're trying to, how do I get out of this one, right? And so the Lord's going, no, I want you to trust me. I want you to ask for wisdom from me. 
so that then you would begin to understand and we would grow in relationship. You would become more mature. You would become the man or woman that God wants you to become. So now, in 9 through 12, as he wraps up this discussion, he's saying, if you're poor, if you're rich, it doesn't matter. God is going to give you trials. And if you're rich or poor, that you can worship in the same assembly, that really doesn't matter. And James wrote, so James points out basically the benefits and the challenges of both rich and the poor. It doesn't matter. Trials remind the poor that they're rich in the Lord. And trials remind the rich, don't depend on your riches. And so what does he tell us? Well, he's going to conclude in verse 12. Take a look at verse 12. He's going to remind you that basically here's your motivation. I'm going to give you the motivations as to why you would want to have joy and ask for wisdom in the midst of trial. And then he's also going to say, also it's going to determine whether you truly are a Christian. It's going to test whether you really love Christ or not. So endure through them, stay strong, depend on him so God can accomplish his purposes. And again, one more time, he is bringing this up because this is a major issue with the people he's writing to. He's bringing up wealth whether you're rich or poor, because right now, in the context of James, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. You see, what's going on? I'm so glad you asked. There's great struggles. The wealthy landowners in the first century world were exploiting the poor by enslaving them. You say, how'd they enslave them? Well, they weren't actually literally slaves. They'd take free men, free women, and they'd say, okay, you work my land, and then you can stay on my land, and so you'll stay in this little shack, right? But I'm going to charge you for staying in the shack. And they're going to charge them so much, they can never get ahead financially, so they remain a slave to that job. Some of you feel that way at work, right? I can never get out of this job. Got it. That's what's happening there. Well, the Jews, the wealthy landowners, were doing, starting to pick that up from the secular world, and they were doing it to the Jews in the first century, and it was causing such great resentment that the Jewish people are actually revolting from time to time. Sometimes they'd actually even kill the wealthy landowner because he was so abusive in this control and keeping them impoverished. Well, then it was even five to ten times worse if you were a Jewish Christian. Because as a Jewish Christian, if you were born again, you're a baptized believer. What happened to you was incredible because you were forsaken by your family. You were kicked off the land that you worked. You could not get a job among the Jewish communities because they all despised you. And therefore, many of them were who were doing well. They were not rich in the sense of we term rich, but they were, had a home. They had clothes. They had food. And now they're kicked out of Israel because they couldn't go anywhere that they weren't despised. And those are the people, are you ready, James is writing to. He's writing to those people who are scattered because they were impoverished, because they were abused in this kind of scenario. So if you would now read verses 9, 10, 11, and 12 out loud with me so we can understand exactly what's going on here. I tried to set it up for you so you get the full ethos of what's happening here. So let's read it together out loud. Everyone together? But the brother of humble circumstance is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flowers fall off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, 
For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. He gives you two major tests here. This passage contains two major emphasis. First, he's going to instruct his readers that trials come to everybody, rich or poor, and then he's going to talk about the summary verse, which is verse 12. But number one in your outline, trials are the great equalizer. They're the great equalizer. In fact, he's going to instruct them, and he demonstrates that truth with first in your outline, the poor are rich in trial. The poor are rich in trial. Verse 9, take a look at it. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his what? His high position. True faith in Christ brings the poor man to a new importance. So much so that you may be living off food stamps, but the moment you come to Christ, you are crucial within the context of the church. Look at the people around you right now. Go ahead, just glance down your row. Look at them. These people are important to God. They are absolutely valuable to God. I mean, think about it. Uh, in the true church, there are no class distinctions. Don't you love that? We are just in Christ. There's no second-class citizens. The slave might be the elder who's actually discipling the master in that particular first-century context. Uh, let me help you put it uh, you know, in a way maybe we can all understand it. Which body part would you like to get rid of? I mean, you've you got a body. Okay, what, you want to get rid of a little pinky? Uh, which, which organ would you like to just kind of toss? Anybody? Like a, just one of your kidneys, get rid of it. Anybody? Uh, you know, an eyeball, a teeth, a lip, a nose. Uh, what do you want to get rid of? Uh, honestly, anybody? I, we could all be here just with, you know, no little toes. We just kind of get rid of our little toes because it's really not necessary. I mean, it helps us walk a little bit. But honestly, I want to keep every single one of my limbs. I do. I like them. Okay? I like balance. I like, I, I'm like, I like having ten fingers. I hope nothing just happens because I said that. I, 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 I want to keep all of them. They're all important to me. Listen, when you are a part of the body of Christ, you're a part of His body, and you are just as valuable as the way you just thought about your own body. We all have a part to play, and all are significant. In the same way, each one of you are crucial to the local church, to the church family, to the body of who? Christ. But the good news is this. In Christ, in the church, social distinctions in the world are obliterated. No believer matters more than any other believer. Each one of us are valued by Christ and essential to the health of the body, whether we're rich or poor. James is trying to make a point here that in, even in your poverty, Christian, even though you have suffered this, understand you have purpose in this world. You have purpose. The Bible teaches every man, rich or poor, has a task to do. Every single believer in here is to be salt and light in the watching world. Everyone is you to minister your giftedness in a way to put Christ on display that nobody else can. Each believer is of use to God, even if you're confined to a bed, a bed of pain. You say, why? Because your prayers can make a difference for eternity. Can they not? Yes, every single person. In fact, as one believer said it this way, he said, call no man worthless for whom Christ has died. We all have incredible value. And some of these scattered Jews that James writes to here were poor before he wrote them. Some of them became poor. They knew security. They knew an income. They had plenty of food and plenty of clothes and plenty of... And now they have none. 
and now they're in this situation. They've lost their homes and lands, and they're having to flee Jewish persecutors. They're really struggling. So in verse 9, he says, the brother or sister of humble circumstances, that many of them, poverty is a brand new thing. But in spite of that, he says, the destitute disciples, verse 9, are to glory in their high position. You want to circle that word glory in your text because that's the main verb of this paragraph. Glory is the main verb here. It means to boast, to brag, to rejoice. And basically, it is a legitimate form of thankfulness that even the most destitute Christian can have in his high position in Christ. Listen, I don't care how poor you are, how difficult your life is, or how sore you are in the morning, every morning when you get up. It doesn't matter because in Christ you will have a hugely, wonderfully high position. You are. All of you Christians, especially poor believers, can rejoice, even brag over the countless blessings. And I don't know, when our kids were growing up, we used to sing that old tent revival hymn, right? Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has. Okay, about five of you, all right? Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. Name a blessing, and that's what we do. We would just go, name a blessing. They'd have to say something, and of course, boys are not going to name a blessing. So we, we had to work at that. You may be considered the scum of the world, but in God's eyes, you're exalted. You've got to think about who you are in Christ. You've forgotten what he did for you. You may be hungry, but you've got the bread of life. You may be thirsty, but you've got the water of life. You may be poor, but you have eternal riches. You may be cast aside by men, but you have an eternal home which is absolutely wealthy and absolutely secure for all eternity. Understand, when God, in His wisdom and sovereignty, takes away physical possessions from some of His children, they're poor, it is for a purpose to make them spiritually mature and to give them greater influence for His glory. You may be on the low end of America economics, but it doesn't matter. In Christ, you are stinking wealthy. Massively wealthy. In fact, the believer who's deprived in this life can accept any temporary and even significant deprivation because he has a future inheritance that is awesome, that is eternal, and is certain. Absolutely certain. You are wealthy in Christ. Now, James, because he wants to make sure he gives a good balanced perspective, he looks at the other side of the coin. Trials are also the equalizing of the rich. Secondly, the rich are poor in trial. The rich are poor in trial. Verse 10, it says, And the rich man is the glory boast in his humiliation, because like a flowering grass, he will what? Pass away. The rich learn when experiencing trials that wealth cannot bring happiness. They can't. Listen. The moment you have a death of a, a wife, a husband, a sister, or a brother, wealth brings no comfort to that, does it? it? It makes no difference. All of a sudden, we're all on the same plane, are we not? The moment that happens, the moment that trial hits, maybe you're wrongfully accused, maybe you're maligned by people at work, maybe it's getting real serious that you might lose your job. Listen, understand, money doesn't buy peace of mind, Amen? I mean, even the Beatles figured that out, right? Money can't buy me. Okay, all right. Trials are the great equalizer. And moving God's children to dependence on Christ, whether, regardless of money, what God's trying to do is 
is help you to realize rich or poor, we need to be what? Dependent on Him. Moment by moment, every second, dependent on Him. James here teaches the other side. And just as a material or poor believer can rejoice in his spiritual riches, so a rich believer should glory in his humiliation. And a believer who is materially well-off, healthy and financially blessed, should rejoice when trials come because they teach him of the transitoriness of all those things. Do you get it? Your health is transitory. Your wealth is transitory. All those things are transitory. And understand, your inability to give lasting satisfaction. Do those things really bring lasting satisfaction? You know what life is? Okay, when I get to this age, then I'll go to college. I get to this age, then I'll get married. I get to this age, then we'll have kids. And then they'll go to college. And then they'll get and, and we're always looking at the next stage. Anybody with me on this? You're like, wait a minute. Did that bring any satisfaction? I mean, the stone said it. I can't get no. And I try. And I try. And I try. And my, one of my favorite preachers says, just try Jesus and shut up. Okay? <laughs> Understand... Salvation in Christ brings the rich person a new sense of humbling. Because the danger of riches is they tend to give the believer a false sense of security. Do we not start resting in our wealth, in our position, in our clothing? We feel safe. We've got the resources to cope with anything. Worst of all, the very wealthy might see themselves as I could buy myself out of any trouble. And it looks like they do. So James gets the attention of the wealthy readers with his description from nature. Anyone who lived in Israel would understand this. And by the way, anyone who lives in Southern California understands this too. Right? Two years ago, big winter, right? And all of a sudden, the freeway, we're driving by, we're going, you know, north on the 15. And what is it? The hills are alive with the sound of poppies, yellow flowers everywhere, causing jams, causing the highway patrol to go, move on, people, okay? Everybody's want to take their senior pictures in the midst of the, you know, the, the, the flowers. Yeah, they're everywhere. It's crazy. And then all of a sudden, just a month later, what? Nothing. You drive there right now, you go, where are the flowers? There's nothing. It's wonderfully California brown, right? Brown. In Israel, they had the same thing. Between February and May, they would have wildflowers that would pop up everywhere. And then, according to May, they would turn brown. It's very, our climate, by the way, I think you already know this, our climate and Israel are the two places that have a Mediterranean climate. It's almost exactly the same. Almost exactly. The only two places on planet Earth, by the way, that have this climate. Right here and Israel. Aren't you lucky? I mean, come on. Move to Texas. Are you cut nuts? Okay. So, understand... That happens here, and we understand it. Listen, something even more severe, though, happened here, and that's what he's referring to. He's referring to a more severe event. Uh, there was a, a, a wind, a southeast wind, called a, a Samun or a Simon. I'm not sure how the pronunciation goes. And it came right off the deserts. So if you understand Israel, they called it the wilderness. Basically, the wilderness that's there is, is not a sandy desert. It's just kind of like dirt and there's nothing that grows there and it's hilly country well what would happen is that occasionally there would be a rainstorm over that dirt and everything would spring up I mean and there'd be grass and if there was a good nice dropping of rain a lot of flowers would come up and so all of a sudden you see this wilderness and it's all flowers and then this Simone would come up the southeast wind that comes off the desert 
And it's literally, I'm not exaggerating, like opening your oven door at 400 degrees and it just overwhelms you with the, the, the heat of it. And that wind would come in in an hour. All those flowers over the wilderness were gone. There wasn't even any evidence that they had even been there. And he says, that's what life is like. That's what it is. Whether you're rich or poor, you cannot trust in the circumstances of this life because, and don't put your hope there, wealthy people. You need to understand that it's all transitory. It's not eternal. Don't put your hope there. Don't get your satisfaction there. What is significant is a trusting relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. What lasts and what satisfies is the internal relationship that God showers all His children with, with spiritual wealth that will never diminish, never fail to satisfy. Trials are the great equalizer. And he says, look, if you put your hope in this, it's going to go and it's going to disappear at some point. It's not going to satisfy. So here's the big question. I've been wrestling this, and I want you to wrestle with me as well. Are you finding your satisfaction in Jesus Christ? Because that's what he just asked the rich people. Are you finding your satisfaction in Jesus Christ? You say, what do you mean? Well, do you rely on him in prayer for every concern and every pressure? When you have a trial, are you trying to do what, you know, is kind of prone to all of us? You're trying to fixate yourself. Or are you actually saying, Lord, you got to give me wisdom because I don't know what to do. I, I, I could try to fix this, but I don't know what to do. Do you look to him for direction and wisdom over everything? Do you look for him for direction? Do you find, are you ready for this, comfort from him when your heart is hurt and when your tank is low. And you know what I'm saying when a tank is low. Your resources are just strained, you're weary, you're worn out, and then God layers on a trial for you. Where do you turn for your satisfaction? Where do you turn for your comfort? Because he wants you to come to him. And then here's the most important one. Do you experience delight in his presence? No matter what trial you're going through, you can be in his presence and it's just because of who he is, you know you can trust him, and you know that your soul can be satisfied because you've turned to Christ. Listen, the test of finding satisfaction in Christ is very simply defined. Are you ready? Relationship. Are you in a friendship relationship with your Savior? Because if you are, you're ready for anything. You're ready for any trial, no matter if you're wealthy or no matter if you're poor. It doesn't matter because you have the resources in Christ. Does that make sense? So where are you at? Well, let's look at the next test, the final test of trials that are found now in verse 12. Number two in your outline, trials are the great endurance test. The great endurance test, James summarizes his teaching on trials with four great truths, and they're all found in verse 12. Let me read it and see if you can picture the four tests. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord promised to those who love him. Four, four elements that come as you endure trials with joy. Now, if you want to remember them, Berg, B-E-R-G, or iceberg, whatever. Uh, it doesn't follow the order of the text, so you kind of have to move the words around a little bit, but that's how I remember them because I wanted to remember these four that come out of trials. When you respond to trials with joy, you make that choice. 
When you seek God's wisdom in prayer, when you trust His will, no matter what your circumstances, rich or poor, here's the application, here's the take-home. First in your outline, blessing. Blessing. He says, verse 12, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. Persevere means endurance. True Greek words, you remember heard that before, it's, it's to remain under. Okay, remember we shared with you about the, the weightlifter when he clean and jerks and he holds the weight above his head, right? You ever seen that? My friends and I used to work out all the time, so I used to make fun of weightlifters. And so when they're lifting furniture and helping me move, they're, they're blowing like a weightlifter does. And, and spits going everywhere and stuff like that. And that's what they would do just for fun. But that's kind of the, the situation. It's like stay under until God says you can put it down. When you do, God promises blessing. You remain under with joy the weight that God gives you. God promises blessing. Blessed is a man who perseveres. He endures under trial. You're going to be blessed. And blessed is more than mere happiness. It's more than a carefree life. Blessing is actually the idea of profound inner joy and profound inner satisfaction. Blessed is a joy only the Lord can give. Only God can do this. Only Christ can give this to you. Stay under the trial till he releases you. You'll experience inner joy and satisfaction. Listen, that's a guarantee. Uh, you know, there, I, I, this is not some sort of you know, charismatic, uh, crazy TV preacher telling you this. I'm telling you, if you endure under trial, you will be blessed. You ever wonder how some of those senior saints, how they're so stable when their whole world's falling apart? Your world's falling apart, and they're like, oh, trust the Lord, honey, it's okay. And you're like, where are you coming from? Because they've been through so much. They've seen the Lord bless them so many times. They're just going to go, it's just another trial. So we're just going to go through it. We're going to watch what the Lord does. And they're just confident because they've gone through so much of it. That's where we're at. That's what he's promising. Secondly, growing. Growing. You're going to grow through trial. For once he has been approved, and he's saying, you're going to mature as a believer. A man or woman of great worth, he's going to make you into. A believer who will impact others for God's glory. James, he says, once he has been approved. In your Bible, you can write next to that word approved, tested and proven. Maybe that'll help you understand. You're tested and proven. It's like all the, the dross is melted out of the gold and now you're pure gold. Uh, the, the faithful working out of lifting weights at the gym helps you get stronger physically. In the same way, your endurance under trial will make you stronger spiritually. He says you're going to grow. You're going to grow. Thirdly, you're going to be rewarded. You're going to be rewarded. Let's take a look at the third phrase in verse 12. He says, you will receive the crown of life. Now, in the New Testament, there were all kinds of crowns that were given. Uh, there was the crown of flowers that were worn at the joyous wedding celebration. There's the crown worn by kings and those in authority. There's the crown of gray hair, which is the mark of honor for those who are older. And the best one in this particular context is the crown of victory for the athlete. And that's what he's talking about, this crown. But the literal rendering of the word crown here is unique in that it is uh, the crown that is of life. He's talking about the crown that is of life. Again, this is the wreath placed on the victor's head of the sporting event. 
But the literal translation is the crown, which is life, telling you that perseverance is evidence of salvation. It's evidence of salvation. If you are a child of God, God's going to keep you. God's going to keep you persevered. In other words, perseverance is not the result. It doesn't result in salvation. But perseverance itself is the result of salvation. You see the difference? It's not you're persevering to get salvation. You're persevering because you have salvation. Because God gives you that ability to endure and to persevere. And like all these New Testament crowns, when you're in Christ, the, the blessing that comes from that is a joy like being at a wedding. It's like the royalty of belonging to the king. Uh, it is. It is actually the dignity of having that mature wisdom. And it's actually the victory that nobody else can win. It's that kind of joy that God gives you. All those crowns kind of point to the crown of life which is then that reward that we'll have in all eternity. Eternal life, but also reward for enduring and being faithful. And then what is the letter four, number four? Fourthly, evaluating or exposing. He says at the end of verse 12, now get this, I don't want you to lose this, stay with me, which the Lord has promised to those who what? Oh, you didn't say it with conviction. Which the Lord has promised to those who? Love him. He's actually saying and literally promising the crown of life only to those who love him. James is connecting endurance under trial with genuine love for God. James is making that connection, not me. Perseverance is one of the strongest evidences of those who love him. I understand verse 12 teaches that trials expose who is a genuine Christian and who's a phony. It exposes who's a real believer and who's a, a make-believer. And the Apostle John repeatedly connects the love of God with genuine faith. 1 John 4, 8, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. 1 John 4, 16, God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God because God abides in him. 1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God that we, what? Keep his commandments. And 1 Peter 1, 8, Peter writes, though you have not seen him, you will love him, even though we've not seen him physically. And then 1 Corinthians 16, 22, he wrote a very strong statement. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Genuine Christians love God. Say it one more time. Genuine Christians love God. When you love God, you will love others. You may not always be lovable, but you will love others. You will sacrifice for others. A genuine Christian, young or old, rich or poor, is not someone who made a profession who walked an aisle, who signed a card, who made a decision once for Christ. That is not the definition in the New Testament. The definition in the New Testament as a real believer is one who demonstrates true faith with ongoing love for Christ. It's not damaged, it's not destroyed, it's not wiped out by trials, troubles, or afflictions. No matter how severe they are, no matter how long-lasting they are, Christians love Christ. Do they waffle sometimes, yes or no? Yeah, do they struggle sometimes, yes or no? But do they walk away from Christ if you're a genuine Christian, yes or no? No, they don't. And that's what he's talking about here. Does it show? Because that's what James says. I'm shocked by this because the very last verse on trials is, do you love God? Because if you're going to walk through trials and you're going to actually endure through them, you're going to say, I love the Lord, regardless of what's happening in my life. 
That's what he's going to say. Everyone here in this room, one more time, is rich. If you have a roof over your head, if you have food on your table, if you have clothes that you're wearing, biblically, you are wealthy. And when you're wealthy, there's a certain way that we begin to trust our wealth and not trust the Lord, right? That's what he just warned us. So that warning is mainly for us here. In the New Testament here, there were people who were extremely impoverished, wondering where their next meal was going to come from, and in real dire straits. And he even speaks to them saying, listen, when trials come, you can still recognize how rich you are in Christ. Very profound statement. Even if you're poor, trials are meant to transform you. Trials are God's personal and specific gym for you. Say, Chris, I don't have a gym membership. You do have a gym membership. It's called the gym of trials, and it's God who orchestrates it. It is the Holy Spirit who is your trainer, and it is Jesus Christ who paid all your dues. But you're in the gym, friends, and until you get to heaven, we're all working out, okay? No matter what happens in life, you're going to go through this. And if you exercise His way, you respond to His training His way, you do it according to the Word of God, you will be blessed. You will grow in Christ. You will expose yourself as definitely a born-again believer. And you, I guarantee you, will love Jesus Christ more than you ever have in your entire life. Because of a trial. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the challenge of it. Thank you for how it changes us. We pray, Father, that your word would do its work, that it would be more than just hearing about trials, that we might apply your word in every situation and whatever we're going through and trust you for that. And Father, if there are some here who are really distant from you. They, they know about you. Maybe they made a decision in the past, but they don't know you intimately and personally. Their satisfaction is not you. Would you awaken them to that reality? Would you draw them to yourself? Would you show them how good, how merciful, how gracious, how godly, how loving you are? And Lord, we pray that we might see some who would fall in love with you through the course of the trials you've given and that they might bring you glory in all of this. And Lord, we'll give you all the glory because you deserve it all. You're the one who's in control. You know what you're doing. You're providentially at work. And we're so thankful that we can trust you for these things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.